0: Hello, Church. Hey, that's nice. Uh, Good to be with you. My name's Lachlan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, As Ben said earlier, it's my joy, privilege, challenge tonight to instruct us on God's plan for green living. How do we as humans live within this world that God has placed us in? It's going to be a good night together. I wanted to let you know up front, I've been helped in my thinking on this by two books. Uh, One's a very short book that barely even deserves to be called a book, but it's fantastic. It's called Is God Green by Lionel Windsor. Uh, he's a professor at a theological college in Australia. Uh, fantastic short read, so many pages. You can get through it in an hour, hour and a half. Uh, well worth having a look at. The second one's a fuller treatment of Christian ethics, kind of a resource to have on the shelf for later, called Joined Up Life by Andrew Cameron. Uh, I mentioned those so that if you hear anything you like tonight, know that I probably didn't come up with it. It's from one of these two books. Uh, If you hear anything you don't like tonight, then maybe go and have a look at these and see if they persuade you better than I'm able to tonight. Uh, But both of those books pointed me to a third book that is really the key one, and it's this, the Bible. Uh, This is where we find God's plan for the world, God's plan for us, and so that's where we're going to be looking tonight to see what God has to say to us about us as humans and our place within the environment. So let me pray that God would help us uh, to honour Him this evening with our minds. Father, thank you that you speak to us, that you make yourself known, that you reveal your plan for the world and for us. Thank you that you have caused uh, all scripture to be written. You've inspired it and it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training us in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we pray tonight that you would equip us, that we'd walk away from here better understanding uh, who you are, what the world is, who we are as humans, uh, so that we can better honour you, Uh, in the good works that you've called us to as we live within this environment. Work in us tonight, we pray. Amen. This past week, the UN has released a summary of a report. The full report's 1,500 pages, but they put out a 40-page summary uh, on biodiversity and ecosystems. It's been in the works for a while, all sorts of scientists contributing, and it was full of some pretty awful news. Uh, Plastic pollution has multiplied tenfold since 1980. There's 400 million tonnes of heavy metals, toxic sludge, and fertiliser runoff into the world's waters every year. Industrial fishing, unsustainable industrial fishing, now covers 55% of the world's oceans. And we've lost 85%. We've lost 85% of the world's wetlands since the dawn of the industrial era. The big headline that's been making the news, you might have seen it in the Herald or other news sites that you look at. Uh, The big headline is that up to one million species of plants and animals now threatened with extinction over the next few decades. Now, what do we do with news like that? How are we meant to respond to these reports of climate change and devastating effects on the environment by humans? There are some people out there that think that Christians are actually the problem, that it's all down to Christians that the environment is wasting away. Back in 1967, a while ago, Lynn White wrote a landmark article arguing that Christian teaching gives humans such a central place within the environment that it leads people to see the world, the plants, the animals, everything in it, just as resources, raw materials for human use. The environment, Lynn White argued, had no intrinsic value for Christians. And that just led to Christians kind of dominating the world, taking it for granted, using and abusing it, using up everything that's out there. More recently than that, uh, an influential ethicist named Peter Singer, you might have heard about him, he's alive today, uh, holding high positions of ethics across the world. He made the observation that Jesus never really seemed to address the question of humanity's relationship with animals. What do we do with that? Is the Christian message anti-environment? Or is God green? The joy of church is that as we come together tonight, we'll have all sorts of different opinions amongst us. And our unity as a church rests in Christ. It's going to be okay if we differ on some of the practical outflows of green living. But my aim this this evening is to show you that sustainable care is integral to what it means to be human and especially to be Christian. As we look at all that the Bible has to say, the, the big idea that I hope we'll see is that sustainable care is integral, it's definitional, it's part of what it means to be human, and therefore especially to be Christian. You now, I'm aware that there's people here tonight and you're not Christian. Well, welcome, it's good that you're here. What I want to ask you tonight is to just put on hold your unbelief. Uh, what I mean is that when I start talking in a moment about God making the world, you might want to go instantly, I don't believe that that's what happened. And you'll tap out and you'll stop listening for the rest. I just want you to enter in and kind of see the Christian story unfold from first to last. Enter in with us and go, okay, well, if God did create the world, what would the implications of that be? And see if that biblical story makes sense. See if it's coherent. See if it matches up with the world as you experience it. This evening we're going to walk through that entire biblical story from beginning to end and see the environment and its place within the Bible. And then we're going to come back once we've seen the end of the story and try to find our place as we live in the present. Uh, I've got four summary statements for you. If you've got an outline there, Uh, within that you'll find a sermon outline. Very useful tonight, I think. Take some notes in there. Have that open. Uh, And do you'll see up on screen a mobile phone number. We're going to have question time at the end of tonight. So if anything comes up that you want to ask about for clarification or to push further into an idea, do send through your questions and we'll have about 10 minutes for that towards the end. The first case statement, is there in the outline. Uh, right back at the start of the biblical story, God made the world and he made humans to rule the world under him. God made the world and he made humans to rule the world under him. Uh, it's this idea of human rule that has some environmentalists opposing Christians. If the Bible presents the idea that, yes, humans are special and and over and above other animals, then that surely leads rise to people abusing animals, right? No, 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 we need to just hold back for a second. Ruling, having dominion, is not necessarily a negative idea. To rule doesn't mean to abuse. It means to care for. We're going to spend a bit of time in Genesis 1. Open it up there. Have a look at the first sentence. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the story of the world starts with God making everything. There's one God who's existed for all time, and then he makes everything else. Heavens with the sun, the stars, and the moon, uh, the earth with the plants, the birds, the fish, all the other animals. And God looks at all of this that he's made, Have a look at verse 31 to see what he thinks about it. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. This is where the Christian story starts, with God making everything and thinking that it's good. Right away, the Bible is contrasted with three other stories, three other narratives that are common in society, and that sometimes even Christians can believe. Some people view the world as if there's a spiritual realm that's good, And then a material realm that's bad. That's what we call dualism. Uh, Dual coming from the word two, meaning that there's these two opposing realms. Uh, The spiritual realm, that's full of angels and souls and eternity and God. Uh, That's the good realm. And then there's the material realm of matter and bodies and the earth. And the dualist thinks that these are less important. That the spiritual is more important and better. Everything material is less important. So, dualists will either run away from all the material things, they'll hide off in a monastery and just contemplate the spiritual realm, or a dualist will abuse the environment because it's not really important. Who cares about the environment? It's not spiritual, it's just matter. And perhaps that's where you find yourself this evening. As you come in tonight, maybe you are a dualist. You think that spiritual things matter more than material things. But in Genesis 1, God looks at the creation, the material world alongside the spiritual world, and he says it's very good. Christianity is not dualism. A second popular view is called materialism. The materialist believes that there is no spiritual world, that the material world is all that exists. Uh, This philosophical materialism leads to a materialist lifestyle where the world is just something to be owned and used. And you can use the world however you want. There's no higher power, there's no spiritual value telling you what to do. So burn up carbon, sure. Mistreat the animals. Matter is just matter. As long as you're happy, who cares what you do? Now the materialist may start to worry that the world can't sustain their lifestyle. And so that may prompt them to take some environmental action. If we keep draining the seas, then maybe there won't be any sea left. And where am I going to ride my jet ski then? We may start to worry about our future generation. If we keep cutting down all the trees, will there be any parks left for my kid to play in? So the materialist might do something about the environment, but only out of fear that their lifestyle will be affected. Perhaps that describes you tonight. Perhaps you come here as a materialist. But Genesis 1 is clear that there is more than the material world, that the material world belongs to the non-material God who made it, and he cares how we treat it. So Christianity is not materialism. The third view is the one that I think has grown in popularity the most over the past decade, a view called pantheism. Pantheism believes that the world is divine. You might call her Mother Nature or Gaia. And for the pantheist, the world is all one big interconnected organism. Everything is connected to everything else, and so everything has equal value as part of that whole. Every animal, every tree, every leaf, every human, all has to be treated exactly equally because we're all part of one big mother nature. Uh, This view pantheism shows up in views like Pocahontas or Avatar or Moana, and often the pantheist has a pretty negative view of humanity. We're seen as a parasite or a cancer that's leeching off of nature. And sometimes the pantheist believes that nature's fighting back, that earthquakes, tsunamis, that's mother nature fighting back against humans trying to wipe us off of the earth. Maybe that's your view as you come in tonight. Maybe you're a pantheist. Well, Christianity is not pantheism. In Genesis 1, God is separate from the world that he makes. And he does create humans to be distinct from other animals. We're not the same as the other animals. I hope you got your head around those three competing worldviews. It's helpful for us to know the other options out there so that we can see where Christianity fits, where it differs from these alternatives. Uh, Dualism neglects the importance of the world. Uh, Materialism neglects the importance of God. And pantheism neglects the importance of humanity. So what then is the Christian view? What, What is God's plan for humans and for our interaction with the environment? Well, God teaches us about the world that it is good. We've already seen it in Genesis 1 verse 31. God looks over everything that he's made, the plants, the ocean, the land, the fish, the birds, the livestock, the wildlife, the humans. God looks at it all, he sees all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Now, here's the really, really important point tonight. You ready for this? I think this is the key truth about the world that I want us to grasp today. The world is good, even apart from humans. Did you get that? The world is good, even apart from humans. See, in Genesis 1, man and woman are created last. Before them, God makes all the plant life of the earth. Have a look at verse 12 of Genesis 1. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Again, in verse 21, we read, So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. It's the same in verse 25 with all the land animals. Good, good, good. The, The world, the environment is good even before humans are made. I highlight that for us because it is easy for Christians to think that the environment is God's creation just for us. I think there is some merit in Lynn White's accusation against Christians as the cause of environmental degradation. Some Christians have taken the biblical story and distorted it to say that God made the environment just for humans, to provide for us and sustain us and give us enjoyment. Now that is part of the role of God's creation. It's right and good that we as humans use it and enjoy it, but we'd be wrong to think that that exhausts or is even the central purpose of the environment. The environment of plants and animals and coral and fish, it's good in and of itself. God delights in it. If you want to see this more, two great places to look in the Bible are Psalm 104 and Job 38 to 41. They're written in your outline there. There's a number of passages in that outline that we're not going to read tonight. You can go back and look at those later. Psalm 104 speaks of God providing for all the animals. They look to Him and He feeds them. And this includes animals that humans can't control, wild animals that God delights in. He provides for them. The final four chapters of Job, 38 to 41, it's kind of like watching this epic nature documentary. You're just looking and hearing of all that God has made and you're going, wow, I didn't even know that existed. I didn't even know that happened. And think about it, right? There are parts of our world that we've only recently discovered. Depths of the sea, full of weird and wacky animals having lights coming from all sorts of parts of their bodies, just crazy shapes. They've been living there for centuries before we discovered them. What are they doing? Well, God was delighting in them. He created them, and they were good, even apart from any interaction with humans. The world is good. It's important that we get that post in the ground, because recognizing the goodness of the world apart from humans is central to sustainable living. But we need another post in the ground as well, because you might hear all that I've said so far and think that I'm saying, well, humans aren't important. Perhaps we are just a virus spreading over the face of the earth. No, no, that's not God's view. Have a look at Genesis 1 verse 26. So this is the point where God's made the rest of creation and now is the final piece, the pinnacle of his work. He makes humans. Genesis 1 verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. See, humans, according to God, are not just another part of creation like the rest. There is a special place for humans within the world, male and female, we're made in the image of God so that we can fulfill this task that God has given us the task of ruling over the rest of creation. See, who's the king of the jungle? It's not the lion, it's humans. Who's the king of the sea? It's not the shark, it's not the whale, it's humans. Who's the king of the skies? Not the eagle, humans. God has ordered his creation with humanity in a place of authority, a place of rule over the rest of creation. This is where we run into danger, because power corrupts. We hear God giving us this responsibility of rule, this dominion, and we abuse it. We abuse the creation that God has set us over. But the solution to that abuse isn't to underplay the role that we have as humans within the world. Instead, we need to recognize what God wants us to do with this position of authority. The dominion that God gives to humans, that he creates humans for, isn't one of abuse, it's one of care. And we see this as Genesis goes on into chapter 2. Have a look at Genesis 2 verse 15. Just notice the language, the verb that's used here as God describes human rule. Genesis 2 verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. To watch over it. God made humans to rule the world and to do so in a caring manner. To look after what God had made a manner that remembers we're ruling something God has made and that God believes is good. Not just good for us, not just good to serve our purposes, but good for God. Good even before we came along. God made the world and he made humans to rule the world under him. Our job as rulers is to discern the purposes that God has given for things and to act in line with those purposes. Some of those purposes will be of benefit to humans. He's given us plants and animals for food and to build houses. But things have good purposes even apart from humans. So consider as an illustration of this the tree. What are trees for? The Bible gives us a whole bunch of purposes for trees. A tree is good. A tree is beautiful. A tree is for food. A tree is a blessing in wild places where no human beings have set their foot. A tree is for birds to make nests in and enjoy life. A tree provides shade and shelter for humans and for other animals. A tree is for houses, for kings and people. A tree is simply for the praise of God's glory. Trees have lots of purposes. Some are for humans, others have nothing to do with us. And we've discovered other purposes for trees that the Bible doesn't mention explicitly. Trees produce oxygen. A human rule over creation the rule that god has given us is about making sure that as many of the purposes for trees are fulfilled as possible yeah we cut some down for buildings and for firewood we leave some for the birds we make sure there are beautiful forests this is what we're talking about when we talk about sustainable development or sustainable care it's not that god has put us as park rangers into the world to make sure nothing ever gets touched God wants us to have progress in the world. Progress is not evil, progress is good. But as we make that progress, we need to discern the different purposes that God has for things and try to see as many of them fulfilled as possible. That's sustainable care, it's what the Bible just calls wisdom. I hope you can see now why sustainable care is integral to what it means to be human. This is who God made us as humans to be. This is the position that he's given us, the role that he's given us, to be rulers over his creation, uh, watching over it even as we use it and enjoy it. It's a beautiful picture. God's plan is a good one. Uh, Ordered relationships, humans living in harmony with one another, living in harmony with their natural environment. A wonderful picture. But we don't need a UN report to tell us that this isn't the world that we live in now. We look around and we see the environment wasting away. We see damage and harm. We live in a dying world. That takes us to the next stage of the story. The human heart rejects God's rule, and so we fail to rule creation well. The human heart rejects God's rule, and so we fail to rule creation well. See, the Bible actually tells us that all environmental damage... Is caused by humans. By the time we hit Genesis 3, humans have turned their back on God and decided not to live in harmony with Him. And that's what the Bible calls sin, the rejection of God's authority. And because we reject God, the earth is cursed. It's broken. Instead of producing just sweet plants, it starts producing thorns and thistles that cause pain. We could see this in Genesis 3, but I want to take you to one of the prophets, the prophet Hosea. A few helpful verses in there. So turn open in your Bible to Hosea chapter 4. It's good to know where these prophets are. You might not have read Hosea before, but part of bringing your Bible along each week is to train your fingers, train your mind to know where things are in the Bible. Come to Hosea chapter 4 and hear what God says about the connection between human sin uh, and the impact on the environment. Hosea comes after Ezekiel, if you're still flicking there. You've got the major prophets and the minor prophets. Hosea chapter 4. Pick it up at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, people of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth, no faithful love, and no knowledge of God in the land. Cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery are rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another. For this reason, the land mourns. Did you see the logic there? For this reason. What's the reason? Well, verse 1, humans have rejected God. They've turned their backs on His authority. Verse 2, as a result of that, humans are hurting each other. They're out of harmony with one another. And as a result of that, for this reason, the earth hurts. Human sin causes environmental pain. And verse 3 goes on. For this reason, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the wild animals and the birds of the sky, Even the fish of the sea disappear. See, God has made us and he's given us this position of ruling over creation, but we have failed miserably at it because we rejected God and that put us at odds with one another and at odds with the environment. Sometimes the link between sin and environmental degradation is very specific and we see how one leads the other. Sometimes the link is much more general. Sometimes it involves complex business structures or social structures that reflect and shape our collective thinking or our collective unthinking of greed or haste or waitfulness, And the links are so knotted that it's hard to untie. But the Bible's picture is clear that it's human sin that leads to environmental damage. On screen, as an example, you'll see a photo of the Exxon Valdez. This was an oil tanker that ran aground near Alaska before many of you were born, Uh, 1989. When the Exxon Valdez ran aground, 11 million gallons of oil was spilled into the sea, covered a coastline of 750 kilometres, which is about the length of coastline from the northern tip of New Zealand down and around to New Plymouth, all covered in crude oil. 250,000 animals died. That's a tragedy, right? Why did that happen? Well, firstly, standards in the shipping company weren't up to scratch, partly because the government had relaxed their standards and their policing of those standards, partly because the company just wanted to maximise their profits, so they cut corners and didn't check on things. Secondly, the captain of the ship had a history of being drunk on duty. It was very likely that he was drunk at the time that the ship ran aground. So this disaster was caused by greedy humans living for money, living for alcohol, instead of following God's good purposes for the world. It's easy to blame the people out there, to blame the government, to blame the corporate giant, the drunk captain. But before we're too quick to go there, let's look at ourselves. The great thing about this Exxon Valdez disaster was that they took a survey of American households uh, soon after it. and They asked the typical American household, how much would you pay to avoid similar disasters happening again in the future? How much do you think the average American household would pay? Well, actually, think about it for yourself. How much would you be willing to pay to see disasters like oil spills not happen again? As you think about that, just think about how much you complain about the price of petrol because that's where you're going to feel the hit. The answer of the survey, that the average American household would be willing to spend $31 to see disasters like oil spills not happen again. And this is at a time when the average household was spending $1,000 a year on fuel for their cars. Now, what does that say about us? It's not just the greedy Americans over there. We're just as bad as them, you know. It tells us that our hearts are sinful. Our hearts rebel against God. We have greedy and lazy and proud hearts, and that's why we have the environmental problems that we do. The problem's not out there. It's in here. So what's the solution then? Is it stricter laws for corporate giants? Is it petitions to the government? Is it driving less and recycling more? Those are all good things. They may well be worthwhile. Our government's new zero carbon policy that came out uh, this week looks like it could be a good idea. But we need to recognise that all of those things are not going to fix the root problem. They can't fix the human heart. There's a great quote on screen that someone from Uni Church had up on Facebook this week, and I loved it, so it makes it in tonight. Uh, Gus Speth, uh, he's an older guy who spent many years in environmental research. He says, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address these problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. That's good honesty there, right? Education will not fix a greedy heart. So back to the Bible, what solution does God offer? Is God going to do something about this? Is he going to fix it or is he just going to leave it to waste away? The Bible is clear. God will judge the world by fire and renew the world in righteousness. That's our third summary point tonight. God will judge the world by fire and renew the world in righteousness. Come to 2 Peter chapter 3 in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3 verse 10. 2 Peter 3 verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it's clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. See, God has a two-stage process planned for the universe. Stage one is fiery judgment. The end of the world isn't going to be a random accident. It's not going to be an unfortunate result of nature out of control. The end of the world will be God's judgment when the God who made the world takes firm and complete control of what he has made. It will happen when God decides. And on that day, this world that has been poisoned fatally by human sin, it's going to be stripped back, melted away with fire in the heavens. In judgment, God will hold humans to account for how we have completed the task that he gave us, ruling over his world. Our greed, our laziness, every aspect of our sinful lives that we've lived in rebellion against God, all of that is going to be seen, including how we've treated His world. God is going to hold us to account, and you don't need me to tell you that you're guilty before God, right? You know that deep down, or perhaps not so deep down, I know that I am guilty before God of greed, of laziness, of not treating His world well. We all, every single one of us here tonight, deserve to get burned up in fiery judgment. That's stage one of God's plan. But God doesn't just stop there. There is a stage two, renewal. Did you see it there in verse 13 of 2 Peter 3? I'll read it again. Based on God's promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. God doesn't stop at judgment. He recreates a perfect new world. A new environment that's populated with plants and animals and birds and fish. I'm sure some of them will be animals that we're familiar with from this planet. Others will be, God will exercise his creativity. There's going to be amazing wonders in God's new world. And in that new world, righteousness is at home. That is, everything will be right. There'll be no more greed, no more injustice, no more harm. It's an amazing promise that God has, an amazing plan that God has to restore creation. And in 2 Peter 3, the people that Peter is writing to, he says that we can wait for this new creation. Somehow, they're going to be there. Somehow, there are some people who will make it through fiery judgment into God's perfect new world. And in that place, humanity will rightly rule over creation. Now, these aren't people who have done a better job here and now of ruling over the world. The Bible is clear that every human is guilty before God, one way or another. Now, the people who can look forward to the new creation are people who have put their hope in Jesus. In Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile with us. In Jesus' death, God made peace with us. God opened up a way for us to turn from our rebellion against him, to return to him as our God. To come back to him with humility and recognize that he is our maker. To apologize for all the ways that we've terribly offended him. Because of Jesus, we can come back and recognize God's authority over us. And we can be forgiven. Forgiven for rejecting him. That's an amazing offer. Based on nothing in us, all that we bring is our guiltiness. but We come to God through Jesus and we say, forgive me. Welcome me home. I recognize that you are God. And as we come back to God through Jesus, it opens up for us this fantastic hope of eternal life on a new earth set beneath new heavens. If you walked in here tonight knowing that you and God aren't on good terms at the moment, can I urge you, can I beg you tonight, turn and trust in Jesus. Because God's plan for the future is clear. There's fiery judgment followed by a new creation. I don't want to see you and your story ending at fiery judgment. I'd love to see you in new creation. Enjoying God and enjoying his world. Turn and trust in Jesus tonight. Jesus is your only hope of making it through judgment into that beautifully restored and peaceful new creation. For those of us who did walk in today, having already cast our hope on Jesus, our first response to this story of the environment is not actually to do anything, but to wait. To wait with eager expectation for the future. Angel read for us earlier, Romans chapter 8, and I think it describes our posture so helpfully and succinctly. In Romans 8, Paul says that as we feel the bondage of decay, we feel it in our own bodies, we see it in the environment around us. Our response is to groan and weep for our world and for its people. And as we groan, we eagerly await, eagerly await with patience the glorious freedom of God's new heavens and new earth. It's our first response as those who trust in Jesus. Recognizing the dying world, recognizing that we're responsible for it, we wait eagerly for Jesus to return. But I want to finish and then take some questions by pressing into some more implications for us as Christians. What do we do while we wait? We've seen the way God made the world to be, we've seen that we messed it up by our sin, and we've seen that God's plan is to bring fiery judgment and then a new creation. What do we do while we wait? We could be led to despair. It sounds like we can't hope to fix the world. Maybe it is just going to get worse and worse and worse. We could become complacent. I'm just one individual. I'm a small cog in a big system. What hope do I have of any impact and change? Or perhaps if everything's going to burn, let's just party it up in some big Armageddon rave. It's all going to burn anyway. Let's just start burning the oil now. Have big fires all over the land. Is that our response? No. While we wait, Christians look to Jesus, the restored ruler, and pursue a life of love. While we wait, Christians look to Jesus, the restored ruler, and pursue a life of love. See, if sustainable care is integral to what it means to be human, and the reason that's gone wrong is because of our sin, then for us as Christians who have been forgiven of our sin and given a new spirit in Christ, who have been given that spiritual transformation... It's not that we now somehow move on from what God first created us to be as humans. It's now especially true of us as Christians that we live out the role God created us as humans to have. God has given us in Christ new hearts. We now have his spirit working in us to help us put greed to death. We can't just go on living in greed. That's not the plan that God has for us. We're meant to recognize our sin, turn from it, put it to death. By his spirit, we can rid ourselves of selfishness. In Christ, we have restored as humans and we're given a new capacity to live out God's plan for the world. That's why I said at the start, sustainable care is integral to what it means to be human and especially to be Christian. So while we wait for that new creation, we should pursue sustainable care. I don't know what exactly this will mean for you in your day-to-day life, but as you live out day by day, take the steps that you can see Uh, to fulfill God's purposes for plants and animals and ecosystems. I'll give you just one example. It's a small one. I don't know if this will be something that's helpful for you. I don't know if it's necessarily the wisest thing, but one one example that we see around, uh, people seem to suggest that composting is helpful. It's a small example. God made land for reasons other than for me to dump my rubbish. God made land for reasons other than having big landfill piles. And so you don't compost because you think that somehow your compost heap is going to last through judgment into eternity. It's not because it's going to be some restored, renewed, like golden compost heap in eternity. No, no, it's not any sense of continuity that means you compost now. But you compost as an act of love, an act done for the sake of the Lord Jesus, an act to, in a small way, help stop the land being filled up with my landfill that I just can't be bothered to cut down because I'm too lazy. That'll be one small example of how you pursue sustainable care in your day-to-day life. Pursuing sustainable care, it's an integral part of being a Christian, a restored human. The second one for us tonight, while we wait, care for animals. There's a great little line in Proverbs, Proverbs 12, verse 10, we read that the righteous cares about his animal's health. Now, an animal is different to a human. We've seen that in Genesis, right? We're not just flattening everything out and going, humans, animals are equal. An animal is different to a human. Respecting a chicken is different to respecting your mother, okay? <laughs> but a righteous person will still respect the life of the chicken as a chicken. What is the purpose for which God has made a chicken? Not just to be an egg-producing machine. Do you buy free-range eggs? Why? Why not? Do you care for the life of the chicken? Not just the taste of the eggs. I mean, free-range eggs do taste better, but that's not the reason why you would buy them. Do you care for the life of the chicken? Because God thinks that the chicken is good. And so while we eat the eggs and we eat the chicken kebabs, we also take care of the chicken while it's alive according to what God has made it, not just according to what we can get out of it. Does that make sense? While we wait, we care for animals. While we wait, we fight greed by pursuing contentment. Greed comes very close to the heart of sin. We reject and rebel against God because we think we will gain from it. And greed is that pursuit of personal gain, more and more and more for me. Greed drives us individually and corporately to cause environmental damage. And God calls us in Christ to put greed to death. As you get up, switch on the lights, turn on heaters... Decide that it's time to buy a new phone, even though your current one's still perfectly working fine and you know that the other one's just going to go and waste and not degrade for a long, long time. To use your car, to order too much food for yourself. As you make all of those day-by-day decisions, it's actually right to start to think about how your actions will affect other people and the world that they live in. Pursue contentment. Fight greed. Fourthly, while we wait, work in ways that love others well. As I've just mentioned earlier, there's all sorts of questions that I don't have answers to tonight about how systemically and corporately and societally we can make an impact in the environment. Uh, I'm a pastor and a theologian tonight. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an ecologist. I'm not a businessman. I'm not a politician. But some of you could be. As you think about how to spend your working life, pursue jobs that express love. Alongside doctors and nurses and teachers who love people so well. It's good to have Christians pursuing jobs in ecology and zoology. It's good to have Christian conservation workers, Christian farmers thinking hard about how to improve sustainable agricultural practices. It's good to have Christian engineers who are working on sustainability and renewable resources. Now we'll be looking more next week into gratifying work, I won't steal all of Ming's thunder from there, but given what we've seen tonight, can I encourage you to pursue jobs that will help us as a Christian community live out sustainable care? It's not the job that I've been freed up to do. I'm here to teach the Bible and to study and dig in there, but you can go out and study the world and then come back and help us as a Christian community live in a good, sustainable way in this world that God has put us in. Pursue jobs uh, that love others well. And finally, while we wait, there is something that matters even more than all our efforts at sustainable care your labour in the Lord. Remember in all of this uh, that the most loving thing we can do is share Jesus with friends and family because judgment's coming, and beyond that, a new creation. And so invite friends and family to look to Jesus and join us in surviving judgment, entering into that new creation. And that's not an excuse to not care for the environment. You are able to do multiple things within the same life, okay? Labor in the Lord as a logical priority, most important thing to see people enter into eternity. But don't use that as an excuse to just abuse the environment. Do both. We're going to pause for questions. I'll reiterate the big idea. Sustainable care is integral to what it means to be human and especially to be Christian. So over to you guys. What do you want to ask about? What do you want to press into? We should have some questions coming up on screen for us. Question one. Does God know virus and bacteria? Yeah, interesting question. Uh, Look, again, I'm not a scientist. I haven't studied viruses. I haven't studied bacteria. Uh, They are part of the world that God has made. They could be a part of the world that has come about because of human sin. Things did change when humanity sinned. Uh, I don't know the exact nature of viruses and bacteria, whether they're living things, whether they have any good positive purposes. I'd have to defer to the other scientists, and I know some of you are in the room tonight They do have good positive purposes? There you go. So find out those ones and find out how the way that we've lived as humans in the world have come at odds with those purposes. Uh, Yeah, that's as far as I in my current knowledge could say on that kind of question. Uh, Other than to say God has made the world and he's made it good. Next one. What compels you to think that Christianity can change human ideals and the way we govern and rule? Can civic minded, not academic education not do that? Uh, Look, it would be nice to think that it could. And Western society has been experimenting in the hope of education for a long while. This has been the hope of the air that we breathe, right? Uh, Educate people and then they'll be better people. But there's a classic joke, I'm sure you've heard it. What do you do when you educate a thief? You get a lawyer. Sorry to the lawyers in the room tonight. But uh, education actually doesn't solve the problem of the human heart. Uh, we've tried it. We've experimented with it. I think we see time and time again that it just doesn't work. So you can keep putting your hope in that. Uh, society at large is doing that. that. That is the alternative option that's given. Uh, but I think the only hope that we actually have to see selfishness and greed change is what the Bible would tell us, uh, God's work in our lives. The hope of a new spirit a heart transplant where God takes out our hardened hearts of stone and gives us hearts of flesh that respond to him, that come back into right relationship with him and that then live the life that God desires for us to live. Uh, The Bible tells us that's our hope and it's the experience that we see time and time again. There's a great little book on evangelism uh, called Marks of the Messenger by Max Stiles. Uh, I know a couple of you in the room have read that one. And he just tells some wonderful stories about uh, different aid workers going to villages, trying to teach the people in the villages, the men in the villages, how to uh, conduct their farming in good ways that will see more produce coming for them. Uh, and, and they can transmit all of the education about how to live in that way. But when they leave, the men still remain terribly selfish. They just want to go out and drink at night and sleep lots. They don't actually want to provide for their family. And then in that book, he tells the story of the missionary coming in and going, hey, actually, if you know Jesus... Here's God's plan for you. You're meant to care for your family. You're meant to not be selfish. Have a look at God's plan and turn to Jesus. Be forgiven for your sin. Receive his spirit. That's the hope that we've got. God working in us to change us and transform us as we cooperate alongside his spirit. Happy to talk more with that one later. It's a good question to consider what is the hope for us as humanity. But I think the education experiment has failed. Uh, We can keep butting our heads against the wall and trying and trying again. Uh, look education is going to be helpful in some way we should educate people uh, but it's not actually going to fix the root problem next one is climate change the part of god's plan no matter how we save the environment the end will come Again, on the question of climate change, I'm not a scientist. I hear things. I've done some little bit of reading. I don't know. The conclusions are out there. It seems like general scientific consensus is that human actions in the environment have had radical impacts on climate, and that current climate change that we're seeing of increasing temperatures are from human interaction in the world. That seems to be the consensus, but again, I'm deferring to scientists for that one. Uh, Is that part of God's plan? Everything's part of God's plan, one way or another. God's in control, God is sovereign, he is working out his good plan. Uh, and there were times the environment will change. Let's be clear on that one as well. Apart from human interaction, the environment will change. But it all does come down to human sin as the root cause. I want to pick up on the second part of the question though. No matter how we try to save the environment, the end will come. That is true, but that doesn't lead us to just go on living in the sinful ways that we're living, Right? If we recognise that sustainable care is a good part of God's plan for us as humans, then that means that abusing the environment is sinful. And Paul would say in Romans 6, right, shall we go on in sin so that grace may increase? By no means. I'm not going to recognise something as sin and go, oh, right, I'll just keep doing it because it's not going to make a difference anyway. We're not pursuing sustainable care because we think that necessarily it will have big environmental impacts. That would be great. It would be lovely if it did, if we could turn back the clock on the degradation of the environment. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. That's not the motivation for me of loving the world, of loving animals, of living well in the environment. It's not because I think that I'm necessarily going to make the biggest change. It's because that's what God's called me to do as a human. That's the right way of living. And so I'm going to do it because it's right, even if I live in a broken world that will end up under judgment. I hope that logic makes sense. I think that's been one of the big uh, insights for me as I've worked on this throughout the weeks is recognizing that even though the world's going to end, that doesn't excuse us from sinful behavior. It's actually our motive of living a good life of love. Next one. Should I avoid buying non-free-range chicken? Would it be sin to do so? As, yep, as a student, it's a better financial decision. I agree. I agree it is cheaper, much cheaper. And this is where greed drives us, right? Because I want more. I can afford more. And so I'm going to buy the cheaper option and take it. Now, look, I'm not here to give you uh, definite kind of answers on questions like this one. This is go, go to your connect groups, chat about this one together, study God's word and see what would be wisdom there, but do hear the words of Proverbs. Uh, the righteous person cares for the life of his animal. And so I don't know if you've seen the documentaries that show how tri- chickens are treated, the way that some of the chickens that we eat are so fattened up that they... Just have no reasonable life at all. It's horrendous as you look at it. Educate yourself on what's happening and how the animals are being treated that you're eating there. And think about ways that you can change your lifestyle. Another thing I was reflecting on, I'd love to chat about this perhaps with some other people. uh, I think some of these changes in our lifestyles will take time. And we should expect that, and that's okay, because our diets have changed what our bodies are expecting. And so if you all of a sudden change your diet rapidly and cut back on all your chicken intake and don't eat any chicken anymore, that's going to have an impact on your body. And so there's probably some wisdom in being slow about the changes that you make here. But lentils can be tasty, and they're pretty cheap too. Much cheaper than chicken. Not tasty? Okay. I reckon you can make them tasty. Uh, Chat to some of our African community amongst us. African curries, oh, so good. Uh, So I hope that's answered the question... Um, it is sin to mistreat animals. It's not sin to eat animals. Okay, So our our conclusion isn't just to run into veganism. One of the purposes God has given us for animals is for food. So it's okay to eat chicken. It's okay to eat animals that you see out there. But while they're alive, we care for them well, even as we go through that process of turning them from a living animal into food for us to eat, we treat them well. We do that in a way that recognises their life, and recognizes the purposes that God has given for them. Hope that makes sense. Uh, and I do. Want, I've been challenged to think about my own eating habits here. I've got some good friends who have challenged me for a, a little while on cutting back on meat consumption in general. Uh, moving from Australia to New Zealand helped with that because meat is more expensive here. And so I did just have to go. Look, I can't afford it, so I'm going to pull back. Uh, but I'm thinking hard about pulling back even further and looking into recipes with other ingredients. Uh, that can be a more sustainable way of living. Hope that's helpful for you. Uh, I I don't have all the answers on this. I want to be clear on that, deferring to others, trying to work out how we live this out as a community. So help me on that. Let's help one another as we do that. Probably got time for one more question there. Will the new earth be filled with animals from this earth like my pets and extinct species? Uh, I don't know. Uh, There will be animals in the new creation... Uh, It's always tricky when we think about what God has promised for that new world, because a lot of it is uh, imagery that is pointing to realities. uh, But what exactly that's going to look like, we're not sure. So Isaiah 65 and 66 are two great chapters that speak on that new creation. I think they're in your outline as ones to look at later on. And they'll talk about lions being there lying down next to lambs. So there'll be lions, there'll be lambs in the new creation. The picture that we get of that new creation is of a world full of life. Uh, The pet's question is a slightly different one. Do animals have individual personalities and souls that have continuity into the new creation? Look, I haven't seen anything in the Bible that would suggest that. Uh, If you've seen anything, let me know. But my current answer would be, uh, no, I don't think there's individual identity for animals that passes through into the new creation not in the same way for humans. So you will be identifiable. If you're trusting in Jesus, you will still be you in the new creation. You'll be recognizable. You'll be totally transformed and different, but you'll still be you. Uh, If you've known other people in this life, you will know them in new creation as well. And you have eternity to get to know lots of other people as well. So that's the hope for humans. For pets, I don't see that in Scripture. Uh, Extinct species, hey, I hope so. I hope there'll be a whole bunch of new animals that God creates that never lived on this earth. God is a creative God and I think as I consider the picture that God gives us of new creation is that that act of creation will keep going into new creation. There's not going to be a static space where the way that it starts is the way that it stays. There's still going to be creation, things popping up, change, happening. We're going to see God's creativity in full and all the beauty that he has in his infinite mind. It's amazing. I'm really looking forward to it. I love the picture in the final book of uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. Just that line. Is that if, who's read Narnia? Yeah, okay, good. I took till I was in theological college to read it, so you've still got time. It's about 26, 27 when I read it. Um, in the last book, he has this picture as they see the true Narnia and they call to one another further up and further in as they just keep exploring and seeing new depth and new richness to God's creative activity. Beautiful picture, beautiful language. And I think that does reflect what we see in the Scriptures of getting to know more and more of God as we see more and more of his creativity in new creation. It's going to be fantastic. I hope you're going to be there. Turn and trust in Jesus and keep trusting in him. Well, that's our time. Let me finish with a quote from Ed Clowney. I've been reading a book with a few people from church on the doctrine of church in preparation for UniChurch Conference. Quick little plug there. Come along, think about doctrine of church at conference. We've been reading this book, and there's a great quote from him. I think he puts it really well. The restoration of God's calling in Christ doesn't yet restore Eden, but it does commission us to be gardeners and not ravagers of creation. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you as the God of creation who made all things, who is so powerful to be able to do that, who is so creative. We love it. We love you. We love this world that you've placed us in. We recognize tonight that we have failed to rule over it well, that we've failed in rejecting you and rebelling against you. It's turned out badly for us. It was the wrong thing to do. Please forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for all the ways that we rebel against you and reject you. Thank you that in Jesus we can be forgiven and that you give us this great hope of a new creation. Now, while we wait for that new creation, would you give us wisdom? Give us wisdom as a community together, trying to live out this life of sustainable care, raise up amongst us scientists, ecologists, businessmen, politicians, others who can help us to think well, through what this world is, who can study the purposes for which you have created things and help us to think through how we can live that out communally in a way that uh, sees those purposes sustained. And may that life be further witness to the gospel that you've given us. Help us while we wait to keep inviting people to meet Jesus, to put their hope and trust in him. And may our lives of sustainable care just enhance that proclamation of our mouths showing that in Christ we actually do have hope, that we've been transformed, that we have a solution for our greedy and sinful hearts, forgiveness on the one hand, and transformation that accompanies it. We thank you so much for that and ask you to continue that work in our lives by your Spirit, through your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.